0: Well, before Jeff comes up, uh, Kathy's going to come and bring us our reading from 2 Timothy, chapter 1.
1: The reading this evening is from the second letter to Timothy. The first chapter of 2 Timothy, beginning at verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. This is God's word. Thanks very much, Cathy.
0: That's terrific. So, do not be ashamed. Uh, we come across many times where Paul states, uh, do not be ashamed. So our objective this evening is one of enabling. Neil already mentioned um, the word Enabling. So our objective this evening is to enable us to understand the power of a non-Christian culture and how to maintain a Christian witness in it. And the secondary or spin-off from that is to enable us to understand the teaching of Jesus and Paul better. So when uh, Paul says, do not be ashamed, we want to look behind that word ashamed, rather than looking in front of it. Um, we'll call him Mohammed. He stood here a couple of years ago, and uh, he spoke of his testimony, and how he was brought up in England, in a Muslim country, um, in a Muslim family, sorry, and um, when he was about 15 or 16, his family moved to the States. Uh, there he was required to go on an agricultural course and he met a Christian lady. And uh, she witnessed to him and he said, I will never, ever, ever become a Christian. I don't believe any of that. It's absolute rubbish. So she said, I'm going to pray for you that when you go to your placement, there will be a family full of Christians so he went off and he completely forgot about what this girl had prayed for him. And he knocked on the farmer's door. farmer opened the door and he suddenly remembered, hmm, what this girl had prayed. So he asked, he was a cheeky young man in his own words, and he asked him, he said, are you a Christian? He said, yeah, I sure am. <clears throat> um, is your wife a Christian? Yes, sir, she sure is he began to feel, "Uh, do you have any children? Yeah, I have two girls. Don't tell me they're Christians. They sure are. And he remembered, oh my goodness, this is serious. Anyway, as he spent his six months, nine months on that farm, he began to see that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and he became a Christian. Now that put this young man in serious danger, because he, being brought up as a Muslim, was brought up in a shame on a culture. Islam is a shame on a culture. Now as he became a Christian, he was duty-bound to tell his father of any major changes in his life. So he thought, my goodness, what do I do now? I have to tell my father that I've become a Christian. His father, on the other hand, was duty-bound to exclude him and even kill him for becoming a Christian. Because for an, um, a Muslim man, father, it was ext- extremely dishonorable for any of your family to denounce being a Muslim and to become especially a Christian. They could go off and drink and do all sorts of other things, but to become a Christian was the worst thing that any Muslim could do. He prayed about this for some time, and after about six months, he decided to tell his father. His mother, in the meantime, had let the, um, had sort of softened the way somehow. And as he told his father, his father went to the kitchen drawer to get a knife out. At that moment, this young man left the house And his father said, I never, ever want to see you again. Muslims live in a shame-honor culture. African culture also, many of them are similar. Um, If you go to where we used to live um, and somebody was sick and they came to you, or anybody, and they had the money to be able to help that person and didn't. It may not have even been their own money, even if they had access to money to help that person and didn't. That was considered shameful. Many other parts of the world as well have this shame-honor culture. The Greco-Roman world was no different. In fact, it was probably even worse. So in order to understand our passage and what Timothy was up against, we need to understand the cultural background to the whole of the New Testament. Just what were people's cultural expectations and norms? How did their society function and operate? And what were the accepted values of the Greco-Roman world in which the baby church was growing up? When we grasp this it opens up a whole new understanding of the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament writers. The Mediterranean-Greco-Roman culture was one, as I've said, of honour and shame. Honour got you up the social ladder and shame sent you down the social ladder. Honour was achieved by the virtuous things or works that you did that brought benefits to your family and society. These virtues were cashed in by what we would consider excessive boasting in public. Is it beginning to ring some bells? And I quote, Great noble deeds might be done, but without people knowing of them, there was no glory, no fame, no advantage to be gained from them. Therefore, boasting about their achievements in public was the cultural norm. So much so that children of wealthier classes were taught the art of public boasting. Now listen to this and I'm going to repeat it. Because this is absolutely key to understanding our passage for today. And especially verse 8. But in a society in which so much depended on the light in which others saw you, their view could not only elevate you, it could literally destroy you. I'll repeat. In a society in which so much depended on the light in which others saw you, their view could not only elevate you, but it could totally destroy you. That is the world in which Paul and Timothy were preaching the good news. The message of the gospel was full of things that were considered shameful in that culture, illogical and incomprehensible. It was not only difficult to proclaim, but your social dignity was put in serious jeopardy. And in verse 8, we find that Timothy was in danger of sinking in a sea of cultural shame. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness, illogical and shameful. That's pretty tough, isn't it? To preach to people who thought your message was like that. In other words, humanly speaking, this new religion, as it was seen, did not stand a chance. Quite literally, was cultural suicide. If you wanted to get a new idea off the ground, this was a lesson in how not to do it. Remember in Acts 17 in Athens, um, Paul was talking to a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers And they began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? I hope you didn't think of me that tonight. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating strange gods, foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching what? The good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay. Okay. So let's go to our verse, verse 8. Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. By what? The power of God. Okay. So let's take a look. Do not be ashamed of what? The first thing is the testimony. What is the testimony? The testimony was that of crucifixion. His hearer, To his hearers, that was the most dishonorable death imaginable. It was the state form of execution reserved for the worst and the lowest of criminals. There could not be more shame heaped on an individual or his family or community than crucifixion. And I quote, It's widely agreed that crucifixion was one, if not the most shameful forms of execution within the Roman Empire. There were two reasons why they were subjected to such tortuous, slow and humiliating death. They were receiving the ultimate punishment for their crime, and possibly more important, they were being used as a spectacle to warn any other slave who was thinking about escaping or committing crimes what could happen to them. Why then would anybody want to elevate, preach, or follow someone who was crucified? It made absolutely no sense whatsoever. He must have made... Whoever was crucified must have made... Whatever he did must have been as bad as it gets. It was utterly and totally foolish. Paul understands that because he's been on the receiving end. And so he encourages Timothy to be what? Countercultural. And not to let the culture determine his self-worth as he proclaims the testimony of Christ And the cross. In a world where crucifixion was the ultimate shame, Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony. So, the testimony they are to bear is about a crucified man some 50, 60 years previous. But what is he to them now? Paul says, Do not be ashamed of our Lord. The one who is over all. And the Greek word there is Kyrios, Lord over all. The cult of emperor worship existed. It was developed as a test of loyalty and a gratitude to the Roman Empire for all its benefits. People were expected to proclaim Caesar as Lord, ruler and master of the whole world. I quote again, the emperor was the curios, the lord of the world, the one who claimed the allegiance and loyalty of subjects throughout his wide empire. When he came in person to pay a state visit or a colony or a province, the word for his royal presence was parousia, which is the same as the second coming. No one was greater than the emperor, period. Paul says, do not be ashamed to own Jesus, our Lord. Jesus was Lord, not the Emperor. What an amazing message. He was proclaiming that Jesus, this crucified Jewish carpenter, was greater than the Emperor. What sort of a joke is this man Preaching, what sort of religion is this, that a Jewish carpenter who was crucified 60 years ago is now greater than the emperor? Ha, 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 what a ridiculous message. Such a notion would have been considered absolutely ridiculous and laughed out of court. To proclaim it was utter foolishness, total folly. Folly if you want to get on and change things, this was not the way to do it. In a world where only Caesar was Lord, Paul says, do not be ashamed to own Jesus as our Lord. And there's more. He says, do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Prisons were just holding rooms for those awaiting execution. There was no concept of reformative or rehabilitative imprisonment. So to be a prisoner, you were probably already condemned to die. To have anything to do with a prisoner was shameful because it showed you had sympathy with the enemy of Rome and a criminal by implication. Why would you want to have anything to do with a criminal? You were as guilty as them. If you knew somebody who was in prison, you disowned them and saved face. Roman society was exceedingly harsh. There was no concept of grace, no concept of mercy. And to add to that, Timothy's very close relationship to Paul as a missionary, church planter and son would have been even more reason for cultural shame. In a culture that disowned prisoners, Paul says, do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering. And so something else, to put up with suffering was seen as weak and unmanly and therefore shameful if you couldn't do anything else about your suffering you took matters into your own hands one of Julius Caesar's sayings was it's easier to find men who will volunteer to die than find those who are willing to endure pain with patience it was anathema to suffer suffering then was for wimps Paul says to Timothy, join with me in suffering. What a gospel, what a message to preach in that culture. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Every other word in this verse is anti-cultural and the antithesis of what it means to be a good and upright citizen of the Roman Empire. The antithesis of what it meant to establish something new. The antithesis of what it meant to get on in society. This is what Paul and Timothy had been called to proclaim. No wonder in Acts nine verse sixteen, Ananias, or the Lord said to Ananias about Paul, "I will show him how much he must suffer for my name." So, do not be afraid of the uh, ashamed of the crucifixion. Do not be ashamed to own Jesus as Lord. Do not be ashamed of prisoners, and do not be ashamed. To suffer like me. How can these apostles bear such a weight of cultural alienation? What is Paul's solution to this cultural alienation? Shame and embarrassment that's felt so very deeply. So how does Paul help Timothy? And what is his advice? And what was Paul's experience? How? By the power of God. Paul's answer to all of this is that we don't do it in our own strength like the culture that he was immersed in everything you did was by your own strength by your own power by your own works by your own boasting again this is an antithesis of the culture he is in we do it by the power of God it's not a power that you have earned yourself it is a gift of God again something which is the antithesis. You never received such a gift. Nobody in that culture would gain power and give it to somebody else. These people could not grasp, humanly speaking, this gospel, this word. It's the power of God by which the gospel is advanced. The very first sermon in church history was Peter's on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people believed that is the ultimate demonstration of the power of God one minute or one month previous they crucified Jesus because he was a heretic and a blasphemer a month later they believed that is the power of God demonstration of the power of God 3,000 people in one day, in 24 hours, 3,000 people believed. Paul says to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My preaching and my message were not with wise and persuasive words, as the Greco-Roman world used, not wise and persuasive words, but with what? a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. Nobody can gain credit for what God does in the life of an individual. And again, he says in 2 Corinthians, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They are not cultural weapons They are not works, they are not honour. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So all of these cultural obstacles are overcome by the power of God. The previous verse, if you read it in verse 7, speaks of this Holy Spirit who gives us this power. Verse 7 says, for the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power. Power is what is needed to maintain a Christian witness in an alien culture. Paul knew it, and I hope we know it. So how does this work? How does God give us this power? And what is this power? In Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will do what? will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, this cultural alienation was something that got through to the apostles and gets through to us. It can make our minds, can alter our thinking about the gospel, and it can weaken us by affecting our emotions, our hearts, the seat of our emotion. Paul says that the peace of God protects or guards our minds from defaulting into heresy and it protects our hearts from fear, protects our hearts from cultural alienation. Prayer and petition and thanksgiving is the way to receiving God's power. So when we're worried that we might make a mess of testifying, turn to prayer. Paul says when we feel worried about what people may think of us, because we're Christians, turn to prayer. When we have an open door to say something, to witness, to say something about Jesus, turn to prayer. When we have to stand up for something that's wrong, turn to prayer. Prayer is the way to receiving the power of God in our lives. The promise is the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds. A guard stops things coming in. You know, the Holy Spirit cannot be defeated. He is the ultimate guard. And if you have the Spirit of God and the power of God guarding your mind and guarding your heart, like these two girls who refused to denounce their faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit was guarding their hearts and guarding their minds. I bet they prayed. Do we pray? Cultural alienation will always be a reality if we are to preach Christ crucified but the, but the power of God to guard our hearts and minds from its effects is infinitely greater reality. So as you engage with your world this week, try to understand why people might find the gospel foolish. Pray about it. Pray about your anxiety and tell them anyway. And you will discover that God will guard your mind And he will guard your heart. And there may be no more difficult place to be a Christian than in school. Peer pressure is cultural alienation. And you guys, you need to pray. You need to pray that you will stand up and be a witness. I'm not telling you to do it in your own strength. Paul's telling us do it in the strength of God, the Holy Spirit. And when you get an opportunity to stand up I don't mean literally stand up but just say the truth pray and do it and you'll be amazed so as we read the New Testament let's keep in mind as you read through the background to this culture or background to the the word of God that's being preached is that of honour and shame Paul says I am not ashamed I will not allow this culture to pull me down and to destroy me because God is greater than culture.